amen. Hope all of you are doing well. I've been walking around just singing with them, and man, those songs that they sang today, I was, it was powerful. So, sorry, I'm trying to catch my breath a little bit. Um, so here's where we've been going. We've been walking through a series that we're, we're titling just Jesus, or this, the main concept behind it is this idea of how do we walk as, as Jesus walked. Now, one of the, the key aspects in which everybody has been doing as they've been walking this through, as we've kind of based this out of 1 John 2, 6, is trying to pull out what is, what is the life of Jesus look like from the Gospels as we've been reading together through various things. And so they're taking it, they're, they're pulling out the life of Jesus, but we're asking this grand question, if we're to walk as Jesus walked, well, what does that look like? Now, whether we're talking about Chris or whether we're talking about Christian or Terry, that's been the heartbeat of what we've been trying to do. We desperately want for Cornerstone to be a church that, that truly does glean and understand so that we might, we might walk correctly. Now, what I want to do today is a little bit different. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to, to Luke 18. That's where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 18. But what I want to try to do today is I want to try to answer an important question, maybe not so much like why did or how did, did, did Jesus walk in this particular instance, but I think more important is to me in this particular text, maybe why don't we, why don't we walk as Jesus walked? What is it that happens in our lives, those moments, because we've all had it, right? We're, we're all battling through just the moments in which sin captures us, so so why is it that in these different moments that, that we don't walk as Jesus walked? Now we're going to look at the life down in this particular text of the, of the rich young ruler. We're going to try to better understand it. We're going to try to pull it out. So it's not just how, how do we, or how do we avoid, you know, not going down that path, but also how do we walk as Jesus walked? We're going to try to pull this out and look at it this morning. But that, that's the question I want you to have in the back of your head. I want you really to be thinking through what I'm talking about here. Why don't we walk as Jesus walked? Now, when we look down in verse 18, you'll, you'll see this, this person that, that kind of jumps out at us called this, this, this rich young ruler. There's various texts. There's Matthew 19. It's in the book of Mark, this particular story where there's this, this guy. We don't, we don't know a whole lot about him. He was probably, if we kind of understand it right, he was, he was maybe either a ruler in the synagogue. He could have been that. Even later, like in Luke 23, we learned that maybe he was a member of the Sanhedrin. After this particular story, we kind of don't know a whole lot about him. Now, what that would mean, and this is what's really important to understand because we got to have this for this particular text, is this particular guy was a part of a, a really select group of men. They were, they were called magistrates, you know, rulers within it, that what they would do is they were appointed to then sit on kind of a tribunal of sorts. And what they would do then in this tribunal is that they would then kind of make sure that within every city, they're able to kind of legislate the law within their particular area. Now, what's so interesting to this, and, and this is, again, what's so important to where we're going, is that these particular guys, because of their role, would not only have a lot of power, but they would be able to attain quite a bit of wealth. It probably wasn't even just this guy. We're talking about a dude that would have probably even seen it within his family, every aspect of it. Now, what's unique about him, maybe that's different than some of the other religious leaders that we see, is this guy really does appear to be pretty genuine. He probably was like, if you were to get to know him, he's probably this pretty good guy from what we can tell. And more than likely what had happened, and if you kind of look back into verses 15 through 17, if you kind of peek back there, 
is that this guy was probably in that particular moment when Jesus, right, this, this particular one, <clears throat> he, was, he came and, and, and as he was watching, this, this ruler was, he saw Jesus rebuke his, his apostles, his disciples, and say, let the little children come to me. And coming to them, right, we know that, that Jesus tenderly held these kids. He, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and then he pronounced a blessing over each and every one of them. I think what's so profound of this is that he saw love in Jesus, a profound love that he hadn't seen in any other religious leaders. And I think probably even as he looked at himself, he said, I don't know if I love like this. I think he just saw him and wondered, like, like who is this mystifying teacher that I kind of can't put my hands around? We also know that he probably heard when Jesus made that, that great declaration in verse 17, and I'll just read it to you, it's here. He just says to them, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And that statement must have like further kind of piqued his curiosity. He was rich, he was powerful, he had everything. And yet what Jesus seemed to be saying is, is that entrance into the kingdom it's for the helpless, it's for the trusting, it's for the lowly. And again, when Jesus is sitting down there like the kids, it's kind of like these kids, they don't have power and wealth. And I think for him, man, something sparked in him and he said, I gotta talk with this Jesus. I gotta understand who he was, who he is. Now what's interesting is, is that as he probably chased him down and just dying to pose the question, right? Like I'm trying to think to myself of all the things that he could have asked Jesus, what is he gonna ask him? And in verse 18, we see what he asks. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted life. He'd grown up, grown up with this understanding of the kingdom, but after he had just heard what Jesus said, he must have been thinking to himself, man, I don't know if I get it. Remember, so much of this idea, he kind of, in some ways, probably hadn't heard before. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God was something that was so different from what he was used to, what he'd kind of learned throughout all of his life. He wasn't like the Pharisee, right, that we see back in chapter 10 that was asking this question to Jesus to somehow throw him off. He, he wasn't trying to, you know, to trick him or to test Jesus in any kind of way. From what we could tell, this guy was just coming to Jesus as a genuine seeker, just going, how do I enter that kingdom you just talked about? Because you mentioned kiddos, and I'm the exact opposite of it. I think he's like so many people. They're just, they're searching for life, specifically now we mentioned this one, the turtle life, but he, he just, he, he like couldn't get his hands on it. He was reaching and he was grasping, but I think he just assumed in the back of his head there was something that I must be still missing. There's something that I don't know. There's something that I need to get. He was honest and he was saying to Jesus and, and he thought this in his mind. We're gonna find out he, he really didn't, but he was saying in essence, I'll do anything. I, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. Just tell me what it is. Now when I was prepping this, there's a part of me that started to go, I wonder what I would have said in that particular moment if a guy walks up to me out of nowhere and says, Todd, tell me, how do I have eternal life? 
Well, I think the old me, kind of in my early days of my faith, man, I would have quickly jumped to it. I said, oh, what we need to do is we need to understand the plan of salvation. You need to understand how you can be saved from sin. And there's no doubt, right? We want people to be saved. We understand that when you kind of look throughout the Bible, sin is what separates us from knowing God and loving God and following God. So why wouldn't we want to come before someone who is standing now as someone who has offended this holy God and not explain to him how it is that you can be saved? I think you also look down at this and, and you, you say, man, <clears throat> I want this guy then to understand he's a sinner. And Jesus is going to come to that in just a little bit. So this is obviously something that's important. We also know that the, the cross is absolutely important in helping now to be able to handle this particular sin problem we had. The cross becomes this eventful reality where God's wrath and God's love collides in the person of Christ. But after we kind of walk through all of these different things then, we would look at them and we would give them something to do. We would maybe say, say a prayer or what you gotta do is you gotta believe. And if you believe these things or if you say this prayer, then you can have eternal life. But what's so fascinating, and that's not what Jesus did. See, this rich young ruler, when you look down at it, his question is one that I think many have asked throughout time. I look around and even the people that I share Jesus with, they're just, they're seeking. They want to understand how do I find life? And this is what Jesus says in verse 19. He didn't tell him the thing he must do, but instead he asked him verse 19, well, why do you call me good? When I first started saying this, I'm like, what does this have to do with eternal life? Like this question that he asked him of all the things he could have said, he says, why do you call me good? Like why did Jesus start with this question? What did it have in any way to do with eternal life? This guy seemed totally ready, so why didn't he just get to the saving part? I think what's so important about this is because he wanted him to know exactly what it meant to inherit eternal life. He didn't want to just quickly rush into anything. So the first place he began, when you kind of look down at this particular text, is he said he began by making sure that the young man understood exactly who was standing in front of him right now that he was talking to. We can see this now, kind of Jesus probing more when he followed up the question with this statement. He goes on, he says, well, no one is good except God alone. But what does this idea now of knowing exactly who Jesus is and only God being the one that's good, what does this have to do with eternal life? Well, when you study the Bible, I think what's so cool about it is you can't get away from the fact there's this continual drumbeat, this constancy that runs throughout all the Bible of God's goodness especially what he would have had at the time, what we call our Old Testament. In David, in First Chronicles, right, he, he, he sits there and sings in front of everyone, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Later in, in Psalms, we, we also know that he, he sings aloud, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Nahum pronounced over all the people of God, the Lord is good, a stronghold forever. So when I, when I sit down and I, and I look at the Bible, throughout the scriptures, and I think this is Jesus' point, there is only one person, one who is able to be able to say he is truly good. God has this exclusive, this claim on goodness. No one else can make that claim. 
I think that's why in Jesus' day, they didn't call them a good teacher. In fact, when you look through the Talmud and they're expressing this idea of what does it mean to be a teacher, you don't find one time in which they address these rabbis, these teachers as good. But if that's true, then why did this guy call him good? And that's where Jesus wanted to poke into. He was gonna use this idea of good to help him to begin to understand what it is to say that I inherit eternal life. We don't know for sure why he asked this particular question, but for some reason he did, and whatever the reason was, we know that what Jesus did, he intended to help him right now understand what is eternal life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's making sure that he understands eternal life doesn't begin with all these things. Eternal life begins with a person, and that person was standing in front of him right now. He wanted to make sure that this person he, who was standing in front of them wasn't just anybody. This person was God in the flesh. So let me see if I can unpack that a little bit. When Jesus was keying in on this idea of good, he was doing it for a real strategic purpose. The question we see down here, why do you call me good, followed by the statement when he says in there, no one is good except God, was to force him to reflect on the life, the ministry of Jesus, and then in doing so, relating this to only God is good, meaning that this one now that he's looking at, if this, this, this rich young ruler would just look at it in any kind of a way, he would realize that the kingdom was right in front of him because God in the flesh was right in front of him. He was in essence saying to this guy, think about it. If I'm good and only God is good, then who am I? Think, young man, think. He was trying to get him to this point, most importantly. He wasn't trying to get him to know how to have eternal life, but he wanted him to know the only one who could give eternal life. He wanted him to know in this conversation above all things that before we ask this question of how do I get eternal life, I need to know this one who is life, Jesus Christ. Now let's go back for a second just to wrestle through this idea of, of this guy that comes to us now. If this was us and asked us, well, how, how can I have this eternal life? Now what happens a lot of times is, and I think there's this great threat kind of lurking here when we talk to people about eternal life. And the danger is that we might convince people of their need to kind of be saved from the re reality of their rebellion against God but they do so to say merely just to like avoid hell. At first, now again, what you might be thinking is, well, isn't that a good thing? We don't, we don't want people to go to hell, do we? However, the risk that we're talking about here is not so much even that they would go to hell, but that you would convince them so much that their only thing they're needing is to avoid hell, and then they're seeking to avoid hell, they get hell because they miss the person of Jesus. In a lot of ways, what we do is we get our ends and means mixed up. In some ways, we present Jesus to people as the end or the means, the means of me being able to get the thing that I want at the end of my life, this assurance somehow that I'm not gonna go to a bad place, but a good place. But Jesus is not just the means. Jesus is the means and the end. He wanted this guy to know it. There's not something that you can do here to inherit eternal life. I, the very one standing in front of you, the one that is talking to you, I am life. 
Many times I wonder, man, as I think back about my time as like a youth pastor, even now as my time as a parent, was I so busy trying to rescue people from hell that in the midst of it, Jesus would kind of just ebb back into the background. I've even wondered if, if maybe why there's such an exodus of young people from the church is that we presented them just this quick get out of hell free card, but in the end, they didn't really know and love Jesus. If Christ is nothing more than a genie in a bottle that just kind of grants wishes kind of at the end of the day, and then somehow he doesn't grant my wishes, at the, the, the young person is then just able to say, well, you know what, if he's not able to do it, I'm just gonna walk away. Who cares? I'm going to heaven in the end anyways. Jesus was adamant about this. And I would say this, if we're gonna walk as Jesus walked, especially over these next 70 days as we talk about it, we have to keep Jesus at the forefront. We keep him at the forefront of our lives and our discussions. We don't present him as a means to an end. We present him as the means and as the end. He isn't just anybody. He is the God-man, the, the, God, the God dwelling in flesh. This is what Jesus was trying to go. Before you reckon with eternal life, you need to reckon with me. Now, he didn't stay there because now after kind of having raised the, the issue of goodness, Jesus kind of moves on here. He, next, what he does is he turns the focus on the goodness of this, this young man. Jesus, he did so, and what he does is he points to kind of the second half of the Ten Commandments, kind of the, those commandments that have to do with like our responsibility to people, if you think it that way. Now, he, now, here's what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, okay, well, if you want to know what to do, here's what you do. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus knew that if in some way he, he just did some deep reflection, he would see that in his current state, he was totally unqualified for the kingdom. The only goodness that would qualify this man, and that's what Jesus was saying, the only goodness that will qualify for, these, for you for this kingdom is the one you just called the good teacher. I'm the only one that's able to give this to you. But we can see from the text, can't we? When you kind of look down at it, he, he didn't get it. He was blinded. He, he couldn't see it. Now, this caused me to ask the question, well, what was he blinded by? I mean, here's Jesus basically telling him, do you understand who I am? But yet somehow he's not getting it. And I think now we've arrived at the important issue for him. The important issue in everything that we're kind of talking about is we ask this question, how, why don't we walk as Jesus walked? Not only has he missed something about who Jesus was, that's the first part about it, but he didn't even understand who he fully was. He was not only confused about Christ, he was confused about himself. He was blinded. But how do we know? Well, when Jesus pointed in the law, right, that we, we can see how he kind of didn't get it because in verse 21, he says to him in kind of a way that just seems so crazy, but he says, all these I've kept from my youth. What? Now, on one level, I thought, oh, you know, maybe he's just an arrogant dude. Maybe he just doesn't get it. But I think there was really a genuineness here. But there was also an ignorance. He really believed. I mean, when you just look at this statement that he had kept the law, he seriously believed that he had fulfilled 
all of them. He sincerely believed that, but Jesus was trying to get him to understand, you're sincerely wrong. He didn't want this ruler somehow to see himself as good because he wasn't good. The guy thought he was rich and powerful, that he had everything, which would have been kind of an interesting status point within the culture at that point. But in actuality, Jesus was trying to help him understand, no, you are lowly, you are helpless. But he couldn't see it. But why? Well, Jesus is about ready to put his finger in this next statement on exactly why he couldn't see it. Specifically, what we see is this rich young ruler's problem was his materialism. Look, look at what he said to him in verse 20 C, 22. Basically, Jesus says, okay, that's fine. I'll, let's, let's go from there. But one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now we're kind of starting to understand why he's so blind. Jesus is going after what this man loves the most. And oftentimes, whatever we love the most is the thing that gains our attention the most and everything else becomes blinded. This particular guy, kind of when you look down at it, that Jesus is going after is, as we kind of find out, well, in reality, as Jesus puts his finger on him, he really didn't love God primarily. He, he didn't really love his neighbors himself secondarily. In other words, he missed the very heart of the law. He kind of understood the law, but he, he didn't get it. And we know this because he had this thing that he loved the most that wasn't God and wasn't these other people that he loved, was supposed to love in himself. You see, if you boil it down, that's exactly what sin is. It's this, this heinous act of loving other things or, or maybe other people more than we love God. Anytime we go down this path, this is the sin and this is what Jesus God talks about. The Bible kind of calls it in, in another word, this idea of being idolatry. And in the, in the book of Ezekiel, especially in chapter 14, we see the dangerous, deadly side effect of that moment that we gain other loves instead of Christ is that the first thing that happens after that moment is we're blinded to the greatness of God. This man loved his wealth. He loved his power. And he couldn't see what should be his primary love standing right in front of him. And he couldn't even see the problem that he really had deep within him. This is exactly why he couldn't see Christ. It was exactly why he couldn't see himself. So verse 23, this is probably one of the sadder kind of moments within the text of scripture. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says in there that he, he basically walked away in painful sadness. The rich man basically said to Jesus, I can't go there. He was overcome by this, this painful sadness because he couldn't bring himself to somehow give up his primary love, wealth, his journey to find life, this, this true eternal life that he's talking about here was right in front of him. Jesus Christ was standing there, yet it eluded him again because greed had so blinded him. He couldn't see Christ 
He couldn't see himself. And that's exactly what sin does. It blinds us. I want you to be careful at this point. Sometimes when I've heard people talk about this, they say, okay, okay, I get what he's talking about here. What we need to do is give up all of our wealth and we need to live this life of, of denying ourselves anything good. No, that's called asceticism and Jesus wasn't making a case for asceticism being the way to life. Again, Jesus is the only way, the only means to true life that's found in him. The Old Testament in fact, puts in front of us these godly, wealthy people, guys like Abraham and Job and, and Queen Esther. In fact, there was a pastor theologian way back in the second and third century, this guy named Tertullian, that he talked about this idea of asceticism and he said, asceticism won't save you. In fact, what he said was he called it almost sacrilegious. He called it evil. He said, if a person somehow thinks by refusing to enjoy this amazing planet will give him eternal life, he is just condemning himself to hell. In fact, the Bible talks way more about this idea of enjoying all that God's given us. So if it's not that then, that somehow he need to maybe just submit his life to some kind of poverty, was that it? No. Jesus wasn't somehow suggesting that he was gonna obtain eternal life by poverty, none in the least. Giving up all you have to follow Jesus Christ, including your love of money, doesn't deliver you from it. George MacDonald, a guy from the 18th, 19th century early on, I love what he said about this. He says, it's not the rich man who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who, having no money, are unhappy from the lack of it. The man who is ever digging his grave is little better than he who already lies moldering in it. The money one has, the money the other would have, is in each case the cause, and I love how he puts it, of eternal stupidity. It just blinds us. The fact is, wealth isn't evil. The love of it is. And any time we give our love to anything or anyone other than God, when love that is supposed to be for God is given to something else, it just blinds us. The thing in this life, guy's life that he loved, we can see in this text, was wealth and power, and he was just blind. Now let me go back kind of to our, our opening question. Let me just reverse back there, because I, I want to pull back out this question why don't we walk as Jesus walked then? Todd, how, what does this have to do with it? And here's the answer. You and I don't walk as Jesus walked because we have wrong or misplaced loves. That's why we don't. Our love is in the wrong place. In my own life and in others' lives I walk with, when we battle sin, we do a great job of identifying sin, right? We say, oh, I'm, I'm angry, I'm lazy, I can't, can't quit looking at porn, I, I can't quit shopping online, I can't quit lying, I can't quit comparing myself to others on social media, I'm anxious. We get frustrated with ourselves and we swear that we won't do it again. We confess our sin to God and we're so thankful that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a wonderful place to be in this idea of forgiveness. But yet in this short amount of time, we're back in the same mess, no longer walking like Jesus. The good news is, right, God continues to forgive, but the bad news is 
We can't seem to break this cycle. We want to walk like Jesus, but in so many ways we don't. And the question in the back of our heads is, why? I think what's going on, even in this particular text, is that this particular man, Jesus put his finger on the very thing that was blinding him. He, he put it right there. You can see the way this man is broken down. He is, he's sad. He's felt the weight of the reality that he hadn't kept all this from the point of view of his youth. But it's not just that we see the mess of sin that we're not walking with Jesus. But Jesus was saying, do you know who I am? So that the man would put his eyes on Jesus. See, this is what repentance is. Repentance isn't just turning away from those things that we hate, these things that keep dragging us into it so that we feel the effects of our sin and we realize that we don't walk like Jesus. Repentance is no turn from those things, but we have to turn from something. And as we turn from this, we now turn our eyes and we gaze upon the greatness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to repent. We turn from our secondary loves to our primary and we fill ourselves up with the greatness of Jesus. And over the last year or so, I feel like God has been addressing some of my wrongs, some of, some of my misplaced loves that I've turned to that have blinded me. I've noticed in my life, like I have this, this fear of people that sometimes, I don't know if I've noticed in the past, probably I was just blind to it. That means I have cared about what other people thought or said about me more than I do Christ. It means I loved people more than God. And in my blindness, when you kind of put this all together with today's environment of cancel culture and all the things that you could run into, the swirling winds of anger, I noticed myself kind of tippy-toeing around issues that needed to be addressed right on. I wasn't walking as Jesus walked. Now I could name all kinds of them. I, I mean, I was sitting there writing them down over this last week of areas of blindness in my life. And I don't know what, what your wrong kind of misplaced loves or, or wrong loves are. But I'm learning more and more as I turn from those things if I don't turn to the teacher, if I don't come to him, I'm gonna always have this pre kind of disposition within me to always go back to these things. I'm gonna go back to instead of now walking by this, the same way that this one that I'm following, I'm gonna turn around and I'm not gonna walk as Jesus walked. And this is exactly what this guy does. When you look at it, he caught, he saw that he was sinful, but instead of walking to the good teacher, he drops his head and he just walks away. And this is what I've been praying for with this message. I know all of you like me. We just, we battle sin all the time. We battle our secondary loves becoming more important to us than Jesus Christ, our primary love. But instead of just beating ourselves up and being frustrated and continuing in this cycle, the way that we break this cycle is we go to the good teacher we find our contentment and our satisfaction and our identity and who he is. And I know some of you might be thinking, oh, Todd, I, I want that. I don't know, though, if I can love God in this way. You don't understand the cycle that I've been in. I am one who loves other things more than Jesus. How in the world am I ever going to get out of it? Well, in this particular now story, everything shifts from the rich young ruler to these disciples with Jesus. In fact, we don't know anything that ever happened to this rich young ruler again. In the back of my head, I want to think, oh, later on, you know, he gets the point and he returns to the good teacher, but we don't know that. 
But as the disciples now watch this rich young ruler walk away, Jesus had this beautiful teachable moment. What he did was he set the stage for just another powerful truth in verses 24 through 26 that's important to the question we're asking. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth, these wrong, misplaced loves, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? The people listening to him, the night, this is impossible. In fact, Jesus' reference here to this camel was that he was the largest animal in all Palestine. And to go through the eye of a needle, what he was kind of saying here is a, a, a kind of a humorous illustration to say, it's impossible. Right now, he's saying to you, this kind of love that the teachers, the good teachers calling you to, oh, it just seems so impossible. How can I walk as Jesus walks? Shoot, Jesus categorically calls it impossible for a man or woman who trusts in their riches, right, and their power, or anything outside of Christ to gain eternal life. How am I gonna do it? But eternal life is given to those who become like children. They become helpless. Instead of running from the teacher, they run to the good teacher. They want run to the one who truly is good life. They want run to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love what Jesus says here in verse 27. I know that it is impossible for you. It is impossible for that rich young man. It is impossible for me. It's impossible for every single one of us. What is impossible with man, I love this, is possible with God. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't trust in your own understanding of the possible, but instead come to me, learn from me. I am the good teacher. I am the one who takes what seems to be so impossible. And as you turn your eyes from those secondary loves and you place them upon me, the primary love, that thing which seems so impossible, walking like Jesus walked, suddenly becomes possible. Look at how the story ends. As I said last week, I, I love the brashness of Peter. And he's just willing to say anything. And on behalf of the rest of the group, right, he, he, he throws at Jesus a thought to make sure that they were kind of getting what he was saying. Peter said, see, we've, we've left our homes and, and we followed you. He was saying in essence, Jesus, is, is this what you mean? You asked us to follow you through Judea and Samaria, so we trusted you. We want to be you to be more and more of our first love. Do we inherit eternal life? And what did Christ say? Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He says to him, yes. Yeah, guys. You followed me. You came to the good teacher. There was this repentance of, of even in some ways he talks about it, walking away from secondary loves and making me your primary love. See, that's what I mean. It wasn't about wealth and power. It was about all these things that are secondary loves that, that blind us because they get so in our face to who Jesus is and, and who we are. I think he was saying to them in a very cool way, 
Yes, no doubt about it. God has opened your eyes to the reality of, of who I am, truly God, and who you are. These, these people that struggle loving God and loving other people, loving these things more, or excuse me, loving things and loving people, not God, more than you do me. I get it that right now, I think he would say to them, you're learning what it means to make me your primary love, to, to make it above all of the loves that you have. Yes, guys, you're getting it. You're understanding it. I think he looks at them and he's saying, fellas, the impossible is being made possible in you. I think he's saying to them, yes, Peter, you will inherit eternal life. And I think he's even saying to us, why is it that I don't walk like Jesus walked? Well, it's impossible. But through God, that's what he's saying. All things are possible. He's saying to them, you can walk as I walk for the sake of the kingdom of God. So why don't we walk as Jesus walked? Because we get our primary loves and our secondary loves mixed up. But when our primary love stands at the forefront, we can walk as Jesus walked. Now, I don't know who's listening to me right now. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're like me and just you get frustrated with sin and the things that just tangle us up so much, turn away from those secondary loves, but don't just turn anywhere. Turn your eyes to the good teacher. Know him, love him, follow him. And I promise you what seems impossible, it doesn't mean we won't have failure in our lives. It doesn't mean that sin won't creep in and we, we go back to those secondary loves but as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of faith, we can walk as Jesus walked. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, today maybe you're hearing this for the first time. You probably might be sitting there even in some ways going, oh my gosh, like I have so many loves before Jesus Christ. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Don't walk away with your head held low. Jesus truly is the good teacher. Go to him and learn what it means to have life, and not just any old life, but eternal life, life to the fullest, even in the midst of the heartache and the pain of this world. Make him your first love in all things. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promises of it. Thank you so much that we can go and we can gaze upon the reality of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much that Jesus Christ is kept at that forefront. And when Jesus Christ is kept at the forefront of our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can walk as Jesus walked. Help Cornerstone to believe that this isn't a pointless endeavor or something that just seems like a neat idea. Help us as we gaze on the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ as we, we, we exchange those secondary loves for our primary love that you empower us through your Holy Spirit to be the people that you called us to be. Father, don't let us settle for second things. Don't let us in any way, in any fashion or any form Settle for anything other than the power and the grace and the goodness and the joy of walking as Jesus walked. Father, if there's those that don't know you, if they're listening to this right now, 
Would this be the first day that they repent, they walk away from sin, all these other first loves, and they find a true love, the primary love, would they encounter the good teacher, Jesus Christ? And we ask all these things in your son's powerful name. Amen. God bless you all.